I'm Sarah Seidner, and this is CNN Tonight. For the first time, the January 6th committee's public hearings move beyond Washington tomorrow. Until now, the committee has really been delving into the actions of those surrounding then-President Trump, what he knew and when he knew it. Now it's what did Trump himself do, and was it a criminal act? And you can be sure, this moment will be part of the focus. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That is just a really short clip of the one-hour call between then-President Trump and Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, four days before the Capitol insurrection. It is key to the question of how far Donald Trump went and how much of a role he personally played in the efforts to overturn the election results in Georgia and six other states. Raffensperger is set to testify before the committee tomorrow. So too is his deputy, Gabe Sterling, and a third Republican, Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers. He also resisted Donald Trump's efforts to ignore the will of the voters. We will also see what the committee is learning about whether Trump was involved in the scheme by his allies to submit phony slates of electors. Fake certificates were sent to the National Archives as part of the failed attempt to undo Joe Biden's victory. We'll show during a hearing what the president's role was in trying to get states to name alternate slates of electors, how uh, that scheme depended uh, initially on hopes that the legislatures would reconvene and bless it. Will we see that he directed it? Um, I don't want to get ahead of what we'll show you during the hearing, but we will show you uh, what we know about his role in this. Anna Bash always asking the pertinent question. The Justice Department will undoubtedly be watching tomorrow. Federal prosecutors are still reviewing those fake electoral college certifications nearly six months after CNN first learned they were investigating. We will also see the personal toll at the state level when former Georgia election worker Shea testifies Trump and others falsely accused her of carrying out a fake ballot scheme herself in Fulton County. She got death threats as a result. Between the DOJ probe and the special grand jury now hearing evidence in Fulton County, tomorrow may help answer whether the 45th president could be held criminally responsible. Yet, even with more than 800 people prosecuted since January 6th, none of those charged to date carry the name Trump. I'm joined now by Olivia Nunzi, Ramesh Panaruru, and Ellie Honig. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Um, like I said, I'm happy to be here, but this is serious stuff. Uh, the, the country is watching in part, but the DOJ is definitely watching uh, how this plays out. Can I just ask you, first of all, what do you expect to hear? I'm going to start with you, Ellie. How important is this legally uh, to Donald Trump and to the committee? Well, Sarah, so I think what we're going to hear tomorrow is different from what we've been hearing throughout these committee uh, hearings thus far in two respects. First of all, the sheer audacity of what Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman were trying to do. They were contacting state and local officials and telling them, even though your state voted for Joe Biden, I want you to throw it to me with zero factual basis, zero uh, evidence to support the allegations of fraud and contrary to the law and the Constitution. The other thing that's going to be different here is we're going to hear Donald Trump himself on the phone with Brad Raffensperger. We know that Trump called other state officials in other states. 
as opposed to the way he normally operates by having, whether it's Rudy or John Eastman or before that Michael Cohen do his dirty work, this is going to be Trump directly in his own voice. How will the hearing Trump himself sort of pressure, and I'm going to ask this to you, Ramesh, how will it pressure state lawmakers? Um, and will it make them shift? Because there are some folks who, who very much believe that 2020 was, you know, that the election was a, a fake, uh, faked election, um, which is untrue. Will hearing all this evidence sway any of these state lawmakers? Well, I think that one thing that it's going to do is highlight the continuing threat of political violence, which has become an increasing part of our political landscape in a way that's really dangerous. And this was a key moment in that. The the unleashing of this very potent lie about the election and the pressure that was made to act on the lie, the pressure brought to bear against people who were resisting acting on the lie. I think we're going to hear a lot about that. And that's not just something with relevance to 2020. It's something with potential relevance to 2024. The other thing is when you hear Trump himself, it gives people who are listening a chance to evaluate this one of these key questions in these hearings, which is, what was Trump's frame of mind? How much of this, and I think this has been actually a genuine question, how much of this was delusion on his part and how much of it was conscious lying? And when he says that snippet where he said, you know, I need you to come up with 11,780 votes, that one it's hard to come up with an innocent explanation for. That one I think helps make the case, maybe not beyond a reasonable doubt, but helps to make the case that he knew that he was lying and he knew he was involved in a corrupt enterprise. The other thing about that phone call, yeah. though, and I, I you know, hadn't heard it in a while and I was reminded of it just now, is that his tone of voice, the, the tone that he strikes in a rally, say, um, or talking to partisan media, it can be a bit jokey, a bit, it can be a bit difficult to know uh, where exactly the line is for him if he's making a mockery of the whole thing. He's, he struck a very serious tone on that call for, for most of it. And I think maybe hearing that, might, if there, the committee has any hope of persuading anybody, if there are persuadable viewers uh, of these hearings, maybe that would be part of it. I also think that seeing, uh, hearing from people who are, you know, kind of government functionaries who are not like in Washington, who are not uh, in glamorous jobs, who are just doing their, their duty, trying to you know, do their part, um, do their jobs. If there is hope for the committee that there are people who are persuadable, who are not, you know, set in, in their defense of, of the former president, uh, I think maybe that will be uh, where they find it. You know, we're talking about this from the federal level, but there is a state case going on in Georgia Right now, as we speak, a grand jury is looking at some of this evidence as well. How might this play? Because it's going to be spilled out into the public sphere uh, now. Yeah, there's parallel proceedings here. We know that as the committee's having its hearings, the Fulton County, which is the Atlanta area district attorney, Fonnie Willis, has a grand jury going. And Brad Raffensperger, who we'll hear tomorrow, has testified. And and Gabriel Sterling, the second witness, has testified. And, And that call that Olivia talked about is so key. I mean, I listened to it. It's we've all heard that snippet. The, I need you to find. It's 62 minutes long. And Olivia is right. When you listen to it, it is alarming. Donald Trump is browbeating Brad Raffensperger. He is attacking him personally. He threatens him. He says at one point, I'm telling you there's fraud. And if you don't do anything about it, you might be committing a crime. It is serious. It's frightening. And it reminds us that the people who stood up to Donald Trump, Brad Raffensperger and Sterling and many, many others, again, like Olivia said, these are state and local officials. They're not big-time, fancy D.C. politicians. And they're Republicans. And they said absolutely not. Yeah. 
you know, and Raffensperger survived politically. And I, I think that that is also an important thing about the political context of these hearings, that, you know, they tried very hard, Trump and his, his most diehard supporters, to take him out at the next election. He was thought to be, you know, just a dead man walking, and he won and he won convincingly. And so there's a message also being sent to Republicans, this is a possible path. And it's okay. one of the political goals or the most obvious political goals of these hearings is for Republicans, uh, establishment Republicans, to kind of rid the party of Donald Trump. I think the more Republicans, uh, like you just described, who are, are heard from, it's probably, you know, going to help them make their case better than hearing from Democratic lawmakers or, or people for whom, you know, those testimonies wouldn't have any effect. They already think yeah. they're biased. Um, Olivia Nuzzi, you said something that I think is important. You said, well, of the people who were did watching. I? You did. <laughs> you did. Uh, of the people who were watching this. Yeah. Because I want to show you the polling. Um, the polling says public opinion has not really shifted much even after the hearing started. And you can see, like, now 58% should Donald Trump be charged for his role on January 6th, April 52, 54. So we're all in sort of the margin of error, right? Um, And then, you know, we also are going to look in a minute about, you know, whether or not people are actually watching this. And and a lot of people aren't watching every detail as it comes out. Um, But you are seeing, you know, the numbers sort of lift a little bit. What are you hearing? Because you've gone out and been at some of these, uh, Mm -hmm. one of Trump's rallies recently. What are you hearing from people? Is this Donald Trump's Republican Party? I mean, a Trump rally is not exactly the environment where you're going to find people who are, you know, questioning Donald Trump and and, uh, uh, persuadable, uh, to use uh, the pundit parlance. But um, I, I anecdotally, I hear from people who say, well, this is in the past. You know, why is this being brought up now? Why are we talking about this now? This happened so long ago. Uh, Shouldn't we move on? Shouldn't we focus on gas prices, on baby formula, on any of the immediate concerns that are are facing the country that Washington could do something to to change? Um, And that's a valid point, right? But I I think in part you could speak better to this than I could. Um, The audience for this seems to be in part prosecutors and, you know, uh, yeah. Independent voters are, are not the people who will be potentially acting on this in the immediate term. Right? I completely agree. I think, of course, they're trying to do this for history. This story needs to be told and told fully. But absolutely, they are aiming right at prosecutors. You can see it in the rhetoric. A couple months ago, when the members of the committee were asked, are you trying to build a criminal case here? They were very careful. Not our job. Now, on a daily basis, they're using terms like conspiracy and fraud uh, and, and, you know, criminality. So they're clearly aiming at prosecutors. And there's an interesting, I think, sort of duality to this, which is, on the one hand, I think the committee is doing a very effective job of presenting the evidence in a way that's compelling. On the other hand, every day that passes takes some of the impetus and the momentum out of a prosecution. And one of the criticisms I've made of DOJ is, if you are going to charge this case, charge a former president with trying to steal an election. It is the most serious crime that could be committed against our democracy. Yet here we are a year and a half out. Right. You, you have to act it looks political, concomitant with the moment. Yes. Yeah. I think the, the committee is in danger of allowing it to be set up as a failure if it does not result in a successful prosecution of Donald Trump. And there are a lot of obstacles to getting that successful prosecution. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, we have to wrap it up. Ellie, Ramesh, (laughs) Olivia, Nutsi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right, coming up. Just days after the arrest of dozens of men who police say have ties to a white nationalist group and plan to disrupt a pride parade, I sit down with the mother of one of those men. She's trying to figure out how to get him to leave the hate group. 
will share some tools we can all use to try and mend relationships in this time of deep societal divide when CNN Tonight returns. It's a scene that's hard to forget. 31 masked men arrested just over a week ago in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. All of them, police say, on a mission to stoke chaos at a pride event in the name of hate. So how does a person even turn to that? I spoke to the mother of one of those folks who was arrested. She told me she's speaking out because she is desperate to find a way to help her son, who's now lost down this rabbit hole of radicalism. I genuinely love people. (laughs) Karen Amsden wants her son back, the one she knew before, before the obsession with his online community, before the political arguments, before joining an alleged hate group. She says her first warning her son Jared Boyce was not himself was a quick conversation. I went to go pick up my grandsons and he just started to I said, I may said something about a quote by Anne Frank or something, and he just said something about, that's not even real. The Holocaust isn't real. But, and I, I thought he was joking. He wasn't. She says when his marriage eventually failed, he returned to her home. How old is your son? Right now he's 27. And where is he living? He um, is living in my basement. She says her son joined the group Patriot Front sometime around 2018. Labeled a white nationalist group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the group was formerly known as Vanguard America. But the leadership changed the group's name not long after this. The person responsible for this deadly act of hate in Charlottesville in 2017 was photographed with them, holding the group's shield, though the leadership later said he was not a member. Amsden says the group's hateful ideals do not reflect how her son was raised. Did you teach him to hate? Um, Absolutely not. She says he has proof of who he used to be printed on his own body. He got a tattoo of Buddha on his arm and he got this tattoo of saying, don't give in to hate and anger and rage. And Wait, hold on. It's on him. I I, I know, it's there. He has a Buddha tattooed Mm -hmm. on him and he has don't give in to anger and hate tattooed on his body? Yes. He's been forever trying to find his place where he fits. So it did not come as a surprise that he was among the 31 people arrested in Idaho for conspiracy to riot at a pride parade. I was hoping after spending some time in jail that maybe this would be a wake-up call for him, like to question where, what is this group that I've been involved? Where is this really getting me? Instead, he doubled down. We tried reaching out to Jarrett Boyce. He did not return our texts. And so that's when I said, you need to, I can't, we can't do this. You can't live at my house and, and be doing this kind of stuff and putting this kind of hate out into the world and, and putting yourself in danger. And I just, you need to, you need to move out of my house if you can't give up the Patriot Front. And, he, and did he give up no, the Patriot No, he front? didn't. He initially was like, no, I can't give him up. And I said, okay, pack your things, get out of the house. He started packing. He made a couple of calls. He couldn't find anybody that was willing to help him. So he came back to me in tears and crying and like, I have nowhere to go. Ultimately, she says, he chose Patriot Front over family. What does it do to you as 
a mother, and this is your only child, to have him choose Patriot Front over you, yeah, over family. It's, 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 oh man, it's a slap in the face um, because I am the one that has bailed him out all these years. She has run out of answers to help her son. One thing to do is to try to help yourself, try to find a support group. Psychiatrist Dr. Joseph Mapierre has some answers. What can a mother say who says she's tried everything? It's a very common question these days, of course, uh, and it's a tough answer because sometimes the answer is no. I think if we're talking about family members or loved ones or that sort of thing, I think the most important principle is just to try to stay connected. For decades, he's been studying why people join different groups. We're seeing is that people who fall into ideological movements are there for a reason. And if we expect them to ever come out of the proverbial rabbit hole, we have to understand what brought them in there in the first place. Amsden says her biggest fear now is that her son's hate is spreading to his young children, her precious grandchildren. They're both amazing kids, but um, we'll be driving out and we'll see a rainbow flag and go, ugh. The rainbow flag. My dad hates the rainbow flag. The rainbow flag is bad, you know. And I'm like, no, that you know. I feel like I have to. No, the rainbow flag is not bad. My dad's gonna tear it down. Well, then your dad's gonna get in trouble because that is against the law. He can't tear down the rainbow flag. Is your son teaching your grandchildren mm -hmm. to hate? I yeah, I, he is. This kind of radicalization is impacting families across the country. It's just one of the many extreme divides in a nation that may be trading compromise for all or nothing extremes. We'll discuss with tonight's guest next. It isn't every day that parents find themselves in the shoes of a mother like Karen Amsden, the woman that you just met, whose son is now tied to a white nationalist group. But every day there are parents and children, family members and friends who are being wrenched apart by polarization and misinformation. Olivia Nutzi and Ramesh Panaruru are back with me, as well as the incomparable S.E. Oh, Cup is joining so nice the conversation. Thank I you. mean, I want you to come back, so I'm I'm going to be extra nice. Okay. <laughs> um, Very positive topic. I'm yeah. curious from you guys. Like, when you see this mother, she is struggling. Are we not all struggling with family member and friends or people who are at each other's throats? I'll start with you, Ramesh. What kinds of things are you hearing just no. in your everyday life? And because it seems to all of us, right? Yeah. It seems to mirror what other people in society are going through. Well, not a lot of white nationalists in my family. I'm I'm happy to say. Um, so this is an extreme form of something that we do see other places, which is this, you know, growing polarization of politics. And this, the, even those of us who don't have this particular problem, yeah. we do see this this willingness to shut people out uh, based on what we think they think. Um, based on the kind of people they remind us of. And that is, I think, um, slowly s infecting the family. The family used to be a kind of respite from that kind of political division. And our divisions are now attaining the dimensions where that's harder and harder to find. Essie Cup, what do you think happened? Why are we here? 
Well, a lot of reasons. And it's been particularly disorienting on the on the flip-flopping of political orthodoxies, things that I used to think everyone in my party believed were orthodoxy. I mean, as you know this as well as I do, now no longer matter because one guy said they no longer mattered. And so to have friends, one-time friends, become political foes almost overnight has been incredibly disorienting and destabilizing. Mm. I will say, I mean... I grew up a conservative in liberal Massachusetts. I went to liberal schools. I moved to Manhattan. I worked in liberal newspapers. Were you attacked? If I, did, did no. You and them? if I didn't know how to talk to liberals, I wouldn't have had any friends. I never had this problem where my politics put people off. Now I have dozens of folks, some family, some friends, some colleagues who won't talk to me who think I've completely changed. By the way, my ideas have not changed one bit. The party has changed. And the demonization, the personal demonization of, of politics, culture, values has completely shifted underneath us. So you don't have to have a child who's a white nationalist to feel the complete disorientation of what the last few years in politics has been. It's bubbling in a different way. The polarization is is yeah. impacting us in many different ways. Olivia Nussi, when you when you see the story, obviously not all families are going to have to deal with something that, that that's this far down the rabbit hole. But what do you see when you're out reporting and talking to people? And again, you know, I work for CNN, so I get it in spades when I am out in the field, which is where I normally am. From people, from everything from fake news to cuss words. I mean, you know, do people not like CNN? Apparently, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't agree. I mean, I this anecdote to me is sort of it's like a perfect metaphor for where we're at politically. In some ways, where this woman is trying her best to keep a connection with someone who's completely radicalized, who's has you know dangerous ideas that he believes, who's at risk of doing something dangerous, perhaps, uh, and she's keeping him in her basement. And it's kind of like, how far do you go? At what point are you no longer just extending an olive branch? And at what point are you tacitly condoning behavior by, you know, giving him a place to stay? I guess probably giving him time to explore these things online, probably giving him Wi-Fi, right? But most people, I think, probably struggle with a version of this, which is, you know, how far do you go uh, to live out your ideals? And at what point um, are people with whom you disagree, no longer acceptable for you to, to, to associate with, right? Yeah. And I think it's a I, it's a case-by-case case thing. And I, I think in general, communication is probably uh, a good thing and not allowing people to be to be on this, like, choose-your-own-adventure ride every day online. You can, like, create your own universe right. that you live in, create your own information feedback loop. You never really have to be confronted uh, with anybody else. But anecdotally, I mean, for whatever it's worth, um, I find that people seem fearful of be- it's almost like the extremes are so loud mm-hmm. um and so entertaining you know you don't see a lot of like centrists sitting around on television talking like right. we are all the right. time right this is nice um not, not calling anyone centrist here um but don't worry but i i think that that leads to people being fearful um of being harshly judged by people right. that they know that they disagree with and they've created this fake version of community yeah and patriotism. He wants yeah. this connection. Yeah. He wants this belonging. You can see that. And yet no one will give him a place to stay. Well, right. right. Because 
They're, they're yeah. not the kind of friends who yeah. will do that. Maybe, maybe they're not nearby. They're on the internet. They're not real. No one opened their house when he was and we've had seen, nowhere to go. And we've seen as people are losing this sense of connection, we've seen this increase in radicalization. We've seen an increase in mental illness, which I think mm-hmm. is not unrelated to kind of the kind of fevered political atmosphere we often seem to have. So all of these things are going on, and they're, but they're to that point. Kind of just to take issue, I feel like. Um, there's a, there's a decrease in stigma, and so there's probably an increase in people in being diagnosed, yeah. right? And so it's hard to know exactly uh, how how on the similar trajectory these things are in tandem with each other, right? It is when, hard to tell. It is hard to tell. But the Internet is a place where you can be whoever you want, and so yeah. um, some people are going down the rabbit hole. It's a, it's a difficult thing and a diff- difficult place where we are. Um, thank you so much. We're going to look at the new Republican Party platform in Texas. It draws hard lines, denies some important recent history, and goes further than former President Trump ever has when it comes to one of the groups of Americans. Coming up next. Welcome back. The Republican Party in Texas had made some very divisive decisions as of late. It is now openly and forcibly opposing homosexuality. Its idea of a big tent party doesn't include the LGBTQ community. This is happening while the Texas GOP boldly embraces the lie that the 2020 election was rigged or stolen. The state convention adopted a resolution saying, quote, we reject the certified results of the 2020 presidential election. And we hold that acting president, Joseph Robnett Biden, Jr., was not legitimately elected by the people of the United States. The party is clear about its opposition specifically to being gay or transgender, calling homosexuality an, quote, abnormal lifestyle choice, standing against, quote, all efforts to validate transgender identity. It rebukes moves by the party's own members to find bipartisan compromise on gun legislation by adopting a resolution rejecting the gun agreement negotiated by Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn. Let's discuss what this says about the path of the party with Olivia Ramesh and S.E. Cup. All right. What does this tell you? I will start with you, S.E. Cup. What does this tell you about where the Republican Party is headed Does Texas give you an idea that this could spread? Yes and no. Um, This is particularly extreme, even for, like, Texas Republicans. Um, To me, this feels like it's the farthest edge of the far right in Texas. Um, I know that because polling shows a lot of this stuff is actually unpopular in Texas. Republican voters don't like it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know. The, the, the abortion ban that no one asked for that effectively criminalizes um, abortion in Texas is unpopular in Texas. Um, so I think this says a lot about where the Republican Party is telegraphing. It might want to go there. Uh, but I don't think it completely represent where most voters are. And to our last segment, that is the case on name your issue. Uh, I think most people in America are squarely in the middle of all kinds of issues. Take abortion, for example. Uh, Most people are not on the far right crying for abortion bans. Most people are not on the far left saying no restrictions. The vast majority are in the middle. And yet, it is so weird that a majority of people feel orphaned 
by the political parties and unseen and unheard because they don't fit into convenient, politically exploitable boxes. The far right is exploiting people on the right and the far left is exploiting people on the left. I don't think it's symmetrical, but it has left the majority of people not represented by this platform, this crazy platform, regressive nonsense in Texas does not represent a majority of people, probably not even in Texas. It didn't represent Donald Trump. I want to play something here for you. Here is what Donald Trump said about the LGBTQ community in 2016. As your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. And I have to say, as a Republican, it is so nice to hear you cheering for what I just said. Thank you. you. Okay, so that tells you something, although that was just a snippet of time in 2016. Um, Ramesh, I have to ask you, and I also will ask you, Olivia, is Trump leading this party or is he looking for people to follow, watching where things are going, checking the tea leaves and deciding okay, that's, I'm going to jump on that because it's popular. Well, I think President Trump, former President Trump, uh, still using the honorific there, has always had a pretty cunning sense of what matters to Republican voters, where you could depart from previous party orthodoxy and where you had to stick with it. I don't think anybody thinks that he adopted the cause of opposition to abortion, for example, because it was deeply heartfelt. Um, But he knew that you you could cross... The, the previous Republican orthodoxy on things like entitlements, because there weren't a millions and millions of Republican voters who were diehard in favor of the, that old Republican position. Or protectionism. You, you couldn't, yeah. yeah, that's another example, NATO, but you could yeah. not switch on issues like mm-hmm. guns or the right to life. And so he adopted the standard conservative Republican positions on these issues. Now here I think you got something a little different, because as, as he was saying, this is not a group of people that is representative even of Texas Republicans, right? right? I mean, this, I mean one but might to, even say they're abnormal. But to, but to be fair, I mean, some of these politicians keep getting reelected, right? So it's, Well, right, but John Cornyn, for example, he does very well in Republican primaries, and he was booed there. Ken Paxton had a, had a much worse showing in the latest Republican primary, and he got a standing ovation. This is not— this is, this is a group of people who have always been out of step— Back in the back when George W. Bush was yeah. governor of Texas, but, the state party was dominated by a lot of people who disliked him. I Olivia? think that we make a mistake sometimes as pundits uh, when we're engaging in punditry, um, where we think, well, this isn't popular, this isn't politically popular. The, the party or this politician in general would do a lot better if they mm-hmm. assumed the point of view that the majority of people in this area or in the country hold. And we forget that some people are 
purely ideological, and they are acting in service of a bigger ideology. And when you look at the court, right, when we look at what's happening with Roe, we're talking decades in the making, people deliberately installing uh, people throughout the levels of, of the justice system to, 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 make, make to ensure an outcome like this. And some people are acting purely to execute on ideological beliefs that maybe people that they're, who are voting for them, and most people, not most people, but many people when they're voting, when they're going into a voting booth, are not making a calculated political decision. If I vote for this person here, this person might execute my view on this, this yeah, person, Democrat. right. Right, they're not making it. They're but making a difference a between yeah, taking an unpopular stand I'm gonna and being have, spiteful. That's true. true. I'm going to have to wrap mm-hmm. this up. Olivia Nutzi, Ramesh Panaruru, and Essie Cup. thank you guys for being here. Thank you. Coming up, going inside America's gun culture. In my vehicle, I have an AR-15. I carry a firearm on me virtually everywhere I go. Why some gun rights advocates are pushing for more freedom than ever before, especially now. Why? That's coming up next. Yet another holiday weekend turning deadly from New York To Los Angeles, dozens of people became victims of gun violence once again. A 21-year-old basketball star was killed at a Harlem park. A 15-year-old boy was killed at a D.C. music festival. 47 people were wounded in Chicago. A man was killed at a Las Vegas mall. All this as the Senate has yet to reach a deal on a gun bill. And pro-gun groups are doubling down against any kind of reform. Here's Ellie Reeve. This right here, that's an, I'll even let you hold it. You want to hold that? That's a knife right there. Okay, push your thumb up and push that button up right there. Just push it up. Come on, toughen up. Come on. Come on. Well, I'm left-handed. Are you? There you go. Whoa. Okay. All right, and then you pull it down and it retracts. Those were illegal till 2016 and I made sure that they were legal to carry and then carry them in the state capitol. The, Why? Uh, because that's for an act of self-defense. In my vehicle, I have an AR-15. I carry a firearm on me virtually everywhere I go. But that is a nine millimeter compact Smith & Wesson. And then you got a body cam. We got a body cam. Don Spencer took over the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association in 2016. The group claims it's helped pass almost 40 different pieces of pro-gun legislation. We are not merely a Second Amendment group, a gun group. We are a liberty group that realizes it may take guns to maintain that liberty. Many Americans saw the second elementary school massacre in a decade and thought there should be more restrictions on guns. We wanted to know why these guys saw the same thing and thought there should be more guns, more openly, and everywhere. Can you explain, like, what are you afraid of? Because to an outsider, it's like you have all Republican state government. Like, why? Why? Well, afraid's the wrong word. Okay. Concern. It's not so much about guns. It's about our God-given rights. A good guy or gal with a gun is the only answer to a bad guy with a gun. I've heard that said a lot, but I don't know that it's true. Can you give me a logical reason that it wouldn't be true? It didn't work in Uvalde. It was a gun-free zone. It was in a school. There are police officers. Yeah, there were 19 police officers who had orders from their bosses to stand down. We wanted to talk more with Thompson, so we went to his hometown the next day. I think I'm the only person in OK2A with a Prius. I get kidded about it all the time. Every time there's a shooting, 
The left immediately starts beating the drum. More gun control, more gun control, more gun control. Is it possible it's because they don't want there to be as many shootings? I, yes, I'll admit that that is exactly their motivation. Our basic disagreement is how to stop the shootings. There is no way that they can get all the guns. There's more guns than people in America. So it's a problem that's gonna be there forever, no matter what kind of gun control you put on. Unless, do you want a police state? Do you want people break, do you want authorities? I, but I feel like you're proposing a private police state. Not private police. If everyone everywhere is carrying guns all the time, mm -hmm. you don't feel that's a type well, of police state? They're not out there policing, they're out there prepared for self-defense or to defend others. If Joe Biden's world, I would not be able to defend myself. Is he proposing an elimination of all guns? Yes. Is he? Yes. I didn't, I didn't catch that announcement. That's the, that's the ultimate goal here. You know it's the goal. I know it's the goal. Let's quit. Let's I quit don't know around. that. Yes, you do. Terry Thompson right here on the front row. Yeah, he's a rock star. So what would you do to stop mass shootings? We got to quit blaming what's used uh, for the weapon and these types of things and go to deal with the person. People are confused how many genders there are. They're confused on what bathroom they're supposed to use. They're confused on whether a life is of value even if it's not been born. I mean, are you confused <clears throat> on what restroom to use? No, but we had to pass laws in Oklahoma to make sure boys will use boys' restrooms, girls will use girls. And what does that have to do with an AR-15? Because if you don't respect uh, life, you're not gonna respect anything. Okay, so you see mass shootings as, you know, a cultural trickle-down effect from abortion and transgender rights? Uh, yes. Actually, it's the breakdown of the family. In several states, red flag laws allow courts to temporarily confiscate the guns of someone believed to be a danger to themselves or others. Oklahoma passed an anti-red flag law in 2020. How do you propose, if not this red flag law, keeping guns out of the hands of the mentally ill? Uh, by the mentally ill being segregated from society if they're a threat to themselves or society. We mainly have to go back to institutionalization, which was left back in the 80s. But like, would it be before they committed a violent crime or? Well, I don't know how you, I don't know how you would ever stop someone that's given no signal that just goes to decide to commit a violent crime. I don't know how you do that. You might be wondering, do these guys ever fear that their loved ones could be victims of a mass shooting? The answer is yes. They think about it all the time. By the way, my children were home educated. We had drills at our own home for someone trying to break into our house. What were those like? Well, I saw uh, someone show up on our porch at about 11 or 12 o'clock one night, unannounced. Okay, and so did your kids in that moment prepare your firearms? Yes, because when I looked through the door, I said, gun up. My wife goes to one room, she grabs a gun, the kids go back. My daughter had, she was, I don't know, 9, 10, 11. She had a 32 caliber in her bedroom and we had them gunned up and prepared. And we trained them that if they hear my voice, obviously it's time to lay the weapon down before I went to that part of the house. Uh, if they didn't hear my voice, someone was gonna get shot or my wife's voice, or their sibling's voice. Okay, so so part of the drill is you walk through the house and what you're saying, like, I'm walking towards your bedroom. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm waiting for their acknowledgement because I don't get shot. Wow. See, that to me seems like a scary way to live. 
Well, the scarier way to live is what would it be like had the person penetrated inside the house and harmed me? What would that be? What would that psychology be for my children? We went to a gun range to get the views of people who shoot but are not activists. I have guns at home. I'm at the gun range to go shoot guns now. But they need to go back to before when it was not as easy to get a gun. Uh, we have two guns. We have a uh, 20 gauge shotgun uh, for home defense, and then we have, uh, we just got an AR-15. There's a lot of common sense gun laws and stuff that I support, that a lot of the people I know support. You know, I've held the same kind of views on guns for a while, although I have never like necessarily had the strong desire to go out and purchase and own a gun until recently. There's so much division in the United States right now, and I don't know how you fix that. But you can't have people throwing the gasoline on the fire, too. You know? And you think uh, gun restrictions would be gas on the fire? Yes. We're not gun nuts, we're liberty nuts. The only reason we're concerned about guns is that's the only thing that protects the rest of the constitutional rights. And that's why the founders put it in there. And, and why didn't they make it number one? Because free speech is number one. And free speech is being assaulted in America. Why isn't the Second Amendment stopping it? Because if it gets that bad, then it's going to be in the streets. That's why I'm working so hard politically, because we have to solve these problems. Ellie Reeve, CNN, Oklahoma City. Like that gentleman said, our basic disagreement in this country is how to stop the shooting. Don Lemon starts right now. <laughs>